I'd like to thank the MES for inviting me today. It's been 25 years since I've spoken at YU. Uh, so uh, you have good taste in inviting me back. And I'd also like, in the uh, interest of disclosure, to say that any relationship between me and Yitsumiaski is purely genetic. <laughs> Did you hear the one about the two Orthodox Jews sitting at the, on the corner getting drunk? I'm sorry. Did you hear the one about... Yes, you did. Did you hear the one about the two Orthodox Jews sitting on the corner getting drunk? Well, if you didn't, I didn't hear it either. Because that joke probably doesn't exist. Um, the social scientists teach us that humor about drinking is usually made by groups of people who perceive other groups of people drink more than they do. And they make jokes about them. The Irish about the Italians, the Italians about the French, the French about the whoever. We don't end up on the end of that chain because generally Jews don't use alcohol as much as other groups, especially Orthodox Jews. It's considered about a third of the general population in the United States are alcohol abusers, while it's only about 10% uh, in ours. Uh, about 21% of children admit that they have tasted alcohol before age 13. Well, we know, at least for boys amongst us, they started eight days. <laughs> Yet, we still manage to be at a lower rate of alcohol consumption, at least as far as abusers and dependents. Why is that? Well, amongst the from Jews, alcohol is usually tied to religious observance, and moderations. We're told to drink rabies, not rabies, and another rabies, and another rabies. Sobriety is considered to be a virtue, and it's one of the things that separate us from the going. And so we try to be part from the going, and we therefore may use less alcohol. And then, as we'll touch about a little bit later, there may be some genetic uh, role in, in the amount of alcohol abuse amongst from Jews. Well, what do we know about alcohol abuse from the Torah? Well, let me cite to you some of the sukim that are commonly used to people who argue one way or the other. In the Bible, we are told that one of the factoim that the Jews are, 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 uh, are punished for is simcha. We didn't serve Hashem with simcha. And how do we get happy? Well, the Hillam tells us, Yanyu Samach In Shoftim, we learn, Tiro Shambukim, wine makes us happy. Wine is also used in Carbonos. Wine is used in all of our life cycles. Wine issues uh, in every Shabbos and every holiday. And wine is given a very special designation. It's like bread, the staff of life. It has its own bracha, apart from all other liquids. On the other hand, the Gemara Sanhedrin tells us, Nothing brings more sorrow to man than wine. In Mishle, and there's a lot of references to, to alcohol in Mishle, but Mishle says, Whoever strays and gets involved with drinking, will never be wise. We know about Noah, what happened to him, Lot, when he drank. 
according to the people who say that they were drunk. We also know that Kohanim and Dayonim are ushered to do their jobs if they're drunk. The Ramam in the Hilfos Yomtov tells us, Ashifus, Laskov, Harbei, Mikalos Rosh, Enos, Simcha. Against what we learned in, in Mishwain Tehillim, he says getting drunk is not simple. In Hilfos Deos, Homishtake, Hareze, Chote. Whoever gets drunk is a sinner. But you know, in spite of what I just said, or because of what I just said, it's all, this is all relevant to today's discussion. Because we're talking about adolescence. The Torah is not talking about adolescence. And teenagers, when it comes to alcohol, are different people. Their biology is different. Their development is different. And, and, and so anything I've said to you right now is moot when we're talking about teenagers. In addition, for the most part, the Torah is talking about wine. And for the most part, today we're going to be talking about hard liquor, because that's what kids get drunk on. It's not wine and it's not beer. And we don't have a Mishsora before Europe when it comes to hard liquor. We did a lot of good things in Europe. We had a, a golden age. But learning to drink was one of them which was not so golden. Alcohol is a substance most frequently abused by children and adolescents in the United States. Alcohol is associated with the top three causes of death in children and adolescents in the United States. Car accidents, suicides, as we've heard about, and homicides. A third of all fatal automobile accidents in teenagers are related to alcohol. And 50% of all serious head injuries are related to alcohol in teenagers. Approximately 5,000 children will die from alcohol-related incidents in the United States every year. And we're not including ones that they cause. We're talking where they're the victims, but there are others where the adolescents cause deaths of others because they've been drinking. Alcohol abuse is a problem whether it's an acute alcohol exposure or it gets to be a chronic problem uh, and, and, and we could become alcoholics. Acute problems can be seen from the kids who get into the accidents and therefore it's not acceptable. Purim, getting drunk on Purim, getting drunk on Sipas Torah can, can cause fatal outcomes. On the other hand, chronic alcohol exposure in teenagers can affect brain development. It can cause shrinkage of the brain, it can cause decreased intellect. It can cause decreased ability to adapt to the skills that an adult, that a, a child needs to have to become an adult. And can lead to lower grade point averages. You don't get into YU, you don't get into Harvard. And if you've got a DUI on your record, or you've got a homicide on your record, a vehicle or homicide on your record, it can ruin your future. Alcohol is also a gateway drug when used in adolescence and has been tied to more serious drug uses in kids. And very importantly, there's no cure to alcoholism. And we'll talk about it a bit later, treatment is very hard and often not effective. Well, let's talk about the acute alcohol exposure for a second. Everybody would know that the uh, legal, level, le legal level for being drunk in, in every state in the country is now 0 0.08. This 
number is something that an adult would reach having five shots of liquor or five beers or five glasses of wine over a period of two hours. The problem is with kids, kids metabolize alcohol differently. They absorb alcohol, alcohol differently. They distribute it in their bodies differently. They eliminate it differently. So an adult may end up at the level of 0.08. A kid may double that. At a level as low as 0.05, we're only going to see impairment. When we get up to 0.15, we're going to see severe effects on the child. And we get to 0.45, well, that's when we get alcohol poisoning and death. And if I get to read the papers that every year around this time of year, in some college, some fraternity is having an initiation where they hold the kids down, they pour alcohol into his body, and he dies from acute alcohol toxicity. And a level of 0.45 will do that. Another problem with kids in alcoholism is that we know that there are various stages of intoxication. And one of the earlier stages is getting sleepy or somnolent. And because of the way kids metabolize alcohol and the way it transfers between the brain and the body, they often skip that stage and they go straight to the stage of euphoria where they think they're bulletproof and they're Teflon and nothing can affect them. And kids also are very concrete in their thinkers, in their, th in their thinking, and they don't project the future. They're into immediate gratification. So alcohol causes very big problems in teenagers that you don't see in adults, more and above that you see in adults. Well, what else do we know about teenagers? Well, teenagers have a specific goal. Teenagers have to transition from childhood to adulthood. In order to do that, they have to develop a sense of autonomy and they have to break from their family. And because they have to break from their family, which is a very scary thing for kids to do, they look for things to grab onto to help them ease the transition to adulthood. So what do they do? Well, they hang out with their friends more often. And they're often unsupervised when they do. They join gangs or cliques or groups because it helps them separate from the family. They hero worship because it gives them someone to cling to as they're separated from their family. And who's the hero? Well, it may be somebody who's truly a hero. On the other hand, it may be somebody who's perceived as cool or in. Um, and kids limit test to, and they explore because again, it helps them break away from their family to do things which are forbidden and to do things which they think that to see how far they can get before they have to go back to the safety of the family. Kids are all also very conscious about their parents and how they're perceived by their friends and are very susceptible to peer pressure. So for all these reasons, children may tend to drink. If they get in a group who are drinkers, they're going to drink. If they have perceived they want to be perceived as cool, they will drink. If they want to test the limits of their parents, they will drink. But there's another important point also, which is that we know that it's not only in alcohol, but it's been shown in many studies that the most important influence on a child, even a teenager, is his parents. So 
child who sees his parents acting in a certain way, even if his parents don't speak to him about it, is going to copy them. And this is what's going to get imprinted on them. It's going to affect how they act as they grow. There are certain other groups that we need to think about specifically. One of these is children who are withdrawn. Now, not every, not every child successfully navigates adolescence. And some of them don't find a peer group to get into, don't fit in, and they become withdrawn and depressed. And while most alcoholism in kids, whether it's acute or chronic, the drinking is done in groups, a child who's found to be drinking alone is a child who's at great risk. Risk-taking is uh, a common thing that we see in teenagers. But there are some teenagers who are sensation seekers more than others. And these kids, uh, I, I gave a talk once about sensation seekers and I, and, and I showed a, um, a video that I got uh, of, of kids uh, going over a waterfall on a kayak. I, I had a patient once who had taken the mattress out of his bed and had thrown it into the backyard and was diving off of his second floor bedroom window and landing on the mattress. And the father came to me and said, why is my child doing this to me? And the father was right, he was doing it to him. So kids who are sensation seekers more than the other also are at very high risk. So the child who appears withdrawn and depressed as we talked about, and the child who is uh, uh, going overboard as far as risk taking is someone who needs to be referred not only for drinking potential, but also because of, uh, of these problems. So treating alcoholism is very difficult. There's certain things that we can treat as doctors, take a pill and you'll get better. And all we gotta do is tend on you to take the pill. Things are, some things are easier, we give you a shot, and the medicine stays there and you're better. Alcoholism depends on the uh, cooperation of the uh, patient to get better. And it's a long process. And again, kids don't see the future. They see what's in front of them now. So curing alcoholism is extremely difficult. And therefore, we've got to do prevention. We need to prevent our children from drinking alcohol. How are we going to do that? Well, you've got to start in the preteen era. Don't wait till your kids are drinkers. Talk to them earlier. Talk to the parents earlier. I was sitting at a kid and show recently. There's a father sitting next to me. I was on his third drink. He had a baby, less than a year old, on his lap. And started giving the child the whiskey from his cup. And I turned to him and I said to him very nicely, are you crazy? <laughs> Do you have any idea about the effect of alcohol on the developing brain? And somebody else who was standing next to me tried to diffuse the situation and made a joke out of it. And I turned to him and said, are you crazy? You're trying to make a joke out of this? We have to start when kids are young, preventing it, not exposing them. I generally start speaking to my patients at age eight about alcohol. 
and it can be as simple as everything, and it's saying something like, remember, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't smoke. And it usually gets a chuckle from the kids, but it's putting the idea in the parent's mind and in the child's mind. Um, it's very important. Underage drinkers usually get the alcohol from their parents. And they usually drink in their home or in their friend's home. That's not getting the phony idea and going to the liquor store. It's getting what's already available to them. So we need to start to start, start talking to parents of kids when they're young and start talking to the kids when they're young. We need to set a good example. Because again, parent kids look to their parents. Um, we shouldn't overdrink. We shouldn't glorify alcoholism, and we shouldn't get drunk. Having um, schnapps or wine at shul for the kiddish, that's fine, but it needs to be regulated. Somebody needs to be the bartender, attend the bar, not to mix the drinks, but to see who's getting the drinks. And it should be done in moderation. We have to have a zero tolerance for people who get drunk, whether adults or kids. Nobody should get drunk on Purim, period. The end. That's it. It's dangerous. People die. We know this from, from our, our, our rabbis and from our social scientists and from our doctors. They'll tell you how many kids end up in the emergency room on Purim because they've gotten into accident because they've been drinking. It's not acceptable. Alcohol in the home should be uh, put away, locked up, and we need to keep track of what, how much we have. And although our kids are getting older, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be shouldn't hesitate to supervise them. And we shouldn't. Uh, where are you going? With whom are you going? When are you going to be home? What are you going to do? Schools need to be involved. Schools need to talk about the uh, dangers of alcohol to kids, but they also need to teach the kids coping behaviors. What do you do when you feel peer pressure? How do you stop? yourself from getting sucked into a bad group. And for those of you who are thrill seekers, how are good ways to channel your energy? There's got to be discipline from our kids. They have to know we, that there are going to be consequences if they come home and they've been drinking. Whether they're drunk or not, if they come home drinking, there have to be consequences. And we have to not threaten, but you have to follow through because you kid will test you. And the children who are at high risk because they appear to be depressed or because they appear to be more risk takers need to be referred for psychological help immediately. We don't want to baby our kids. We don't want to smother them. But we need to keep an eye on them. One of the things that we're taught to do is to approach a child and not accuse them but say, let of your friends drink. And that way we enter into the conversation with them. And if the answer is yes, well, do you ever feel pressure to drink or to take a sip? And then we take it from there. My wife showed me something that she had been teaching kindergarten the other day, and I think it's applicable to teenagers also. Rules from a child to a parent. Don't spoil me. I know that I am testing you. Kids will test us, whether they're little ones or teenagers. They'll let them get away with it. 
Don't be afraid to be firm with me. It makes me feel more secure. Don't let me form bad habits. I rely on you to detect them early on. But don't embarrass me in public. Let's discuss it in private. Very important. I don't mean it if I say I hate you. Remember, kids are trying to be autonomous and sometimes they rebel. Be consistent. Inconsistency confuses me and encourages me to test you. And finally, as I grow, be prepared to let go, but realize that I still need you for love and direction. Thank you. Now I'm going to call on Dr. Schulman. Thank you very much. That was an excellent tour de force. I was really happy to hear. And as we all know, that the adolescent brain is not only prone to getting drunk, it's also prone to getting addicted. So the sooner we give the adolescents a chance to experience the uh, endorphin release from their, their, uh, from their early experiences, the sooner we are exposing them to the risk of addiction. Now, all of this has been mental health until now, and all of a sudden, you've got a little old lady pediatrician talking to you about something totally, completely, absolutely out of the topic. But this was the topic I, was, I chose, and they let me have it, so today you're going to listen to a 20-minute talk from a bully pulpit. A bully pulpit is an opportunity to badger people into listening to them and to educate. So today, this topic is totally different. It is vaccines. Now, where it comes to a conversation like this, it still has to be discussed in every level of, of our society. And I have here future parents, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, all of whom have children in their heart. I want them all to know what there is to know about this issue of vaccines. It's an important one, and I feel the public is not so understanding of it. First of all, my motto as a pediatrician, by the way, I've been in private practice since 1976. It's not, not that I now have a private practice. The question is, why am I still in private practice after all these years? That's another issue. Prevention is the cure, just exactly what the doctor said. The best and only way to cure serious illness is to prevent it from happening initially. And I give lectures on preventing obesity in children. I give lectures on preventing sex abuse in children. I give lectures on preventing all kinds of other things like trauma, you know, safety for children. I have not had to give this talk since 1976 to an educated, understanding public. It's embarrassing to me that we've reached this point, but it's time to get this topic understood. In, uh, 1970, in, in 1998, someone published an article that planted a seed of mistrust in the whole vaccine program of protecting children's with vac children with vaccines. And I'll discuss what happened, how he did that. It's easy to scare people. It is very difficult to unscare people when that original scare was found to be completely false. That fear is still roiling through the community, and rather than getting more educated, people are getting more and more confused. So I'm here today to try to straighten things out in your minds so that when people challenge you 
as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, whoever, that you are doing the wrong thing or that they are doing the right thing by uh, not immunizing their children, at least have something to, to uh, in your mind, and I'm making this a real quick understanding of this subject. In uh, 1779, a man named Edward Jenner realized that little milkmaids who milk the cows get a a blistering disease on their hands called cowpox. It comes from the cow to the girl. And for some odd reason, girls who have had cowpox were able to tend to patients with smallpox without risk of themselves getting sick. They were actually protected. And he figured out that there was a protection from that cowpox virus, which is a very plain, not very sick illness. It's just a blistering disease of the hands. And he figured out that he could take the blisters from these girls and inoculate people who had not yet gotten smallpox. And they developed a small case of, of cowpox, and the cowpox prevented them from getting smallpox. And he then in invented and propagated the understanding of vaccination. So where does the word vaccine come from? Vaca is a cow, right? This is just a, uh, his original vaccine actually came from from a, a virus that's carried by cows. In the uh, early 1800s, a very big gong, whose name is the Tiferes Yisrael, was asked a question, and it's in the Pirkei Avos, in the Meforshim uh, in, uh, in Pirkei Avos, you can find this, about Tselem Elohim. How is it our understanding of non-Jewish people having Tselem Elohim? We know Jewish people understand that they're created in Selim Elohim, but what about other people? And his answer to them was, obviously there is Selim Elohim in other peoples. Look at Edward Jenner, a non-Jewish man who saved the lives of millions with a smallpox vaccine. And that quote is coming directly from Tiferes Yisrael from the I think it was the year 1800 or something when he wrote this, um, it was 10, 15 years after the vaccine was invented, and the scourge of smallpox in Europe was able to be, all over the world, was able to be controlled by Edward Jenner's vaccine. So he was recognized in 1779 for, for this, and we're still questioning him in the year 2015. Are we questioning him? Somebody is. And it's time that we understand what went wrong, because Years went by, they were looking for other ways of getting people's bodies to become immune to something before they actually get exposed to it without them actually getting the disease. And little by little, the understanding of developing vaccines in the, in the basically almost all the vaccines were in the 20th, 20th century. In the 1920s, it was diphtheria. There were uh, 800,000 cases of diphtheria in the United States in 1921. And there were 5,000 cases of diphtheria in the United States in 1931 after the development of the vaccine. These vaccines literally stopped these diseases in their tracks. And people will say today, oh, there's no diphtheria anymore. What are we bothering with DPTs? We don't need it. We never see that disease. You see the disease. You stop giving the immunizations and you will see an outbreak. And that happened in the Soviet Union just after the fall of the Soviet Union, when all the countries broke up into their little uh, countries, there was a lot of lack of support of public health systems. And for a period of about five years, no kids got any 
immunizations. There was just no money. It was disorganized. It used to be in a central government. Then each government had to start developing their own programs. And there were outbreaks of diphtheria. I mean, we hadn't heard diphtheria in the whole 20th century, but there were outbreaks of diphtheria in the 1990s in Russia because they weren't immunized. As soon as they gave the immunizations, those outbreaks stopped. So don't kid yourself. These diseases are not gone, except for one. You know what's gone? Smallpox. They were able to track down every last human case of smallpox in, in the 1980s, and they were able, uh, 1970s, and by 1979, they were able to say there is no more smallpox left in the world, and they stopped immunizing because there's no risk. The only risk now is bioterrorism. There are a couple of germs left being, um, being stored somewhere, but basically they, he eliminated the disease. It took him 300 years, but he eliminated the disease. So what is a vaccine? Vaccines can be live germs, they can be killed germs, and more recently the newer vaccines are actually just pieces of the coats of germs that are being duplicated, just a couple of proteins that will stimulate the person's immune system to think that that germ is there, develop antibodies, which are the immune system's uh, bullets to kill off these germs, and once the antibodies are developed, the person becomes immune. So that's, that's the trick. The trick is to trick your immune system into thinking you've had the disease and now you're immune to it without actually exposing you to the actual illness. So we have now had vaccines developed for diphtheria, whooping cough, tetanus, which I said all of which are still current. You can still get these diseases. And then in the 1980s, they developed the measles vaccine. So I just want to show you a little picture here of, uh, I'm just showing, a, I don't have a slide of this. Can you see the dive in that curve? Do you see that? That dive is dated for the development and, uh, and the distribution of the measles vaccine. There were millions of cases of measles. Those measles cases suddenly disappeared and they went from hundreds of thousands and millions down to a hundred. There was, uh, I don't know, I had a quote that it was uh, in 1952, there were 50,000 cases in the United States alone, and in 1961, there were 161 cases after the measles vaccine was introduced in, into the uh, American public. And there is a curve like this for every vaccine, every single one, including polio which was a scourge, it was killing people, it was going every two years, a big epidemic. The vaccine came out first as a killed vaccine, then as a live oral vaccine, and then again as a killed vaccine that was even safer than the first one. And polio is unheard of in the United States. Measles was unheard of in the United States until all of a sudden we started seeing measles in Disneyland. So where did measles come to Disneyland? There are people who were being exposed to somebody from somewhere else that didn't immunize, who caught the measles and gave it to the unexposed, to the unvaccinated. Uh, now the whole um, health department of the United States has got their eyes wide open. Oh my gosh, Disneyland, measles, measles. Okay, so it's measles. I had measles as a kid. I'm almost 70, so that's, that's typical. But measles has one out of a thousand kids with measles have significant damage from it. It is not a mild illness. One out of 20 get measles pneumonia, which can be fatal, and one out of 1,000 get some neurologic damage, which can be fatal. It's a very bad disease. 
Okay, so we have measles, and it comes in waving epidemics coming through communities. We still see it. Mumps, we know what mumps is. There's an issue with mumps vaccine. I'm not going to discuss it with it right now, but they have to fortify that vaccine. Rubella, we weren't even protecting the children from getting rubella. Why didn't we even put rubella in the list of vaccines that we need? Rubella is a mild three-day illness. Some of the kids never got a fever from it. A couple of spots around their body, a couple of swollen lymph nodes in the back of their neck. No big deal. But if a pregnant woman got rubella from one of her children while she was developing a fetus inside of her, the incidence of heart damage, brain damage, eye damage, and ear damage in those fetuses, they were called rubella babies. They survived the pregnancy, but they were completely birth defected. They have terrible, terrible things go on. So they decided to immunize children to protect their mothers. And eventually those immunized children grew up to be protected mothers themselves. So at first, we were able to immunize the children to keep the epidemics from hitting the mothers. And now, as we've been using this vaccine for uh, 40 years now, 40, almost 50 years now, uh, the mothers are protected, the children are protected, and we don't hear about rubella babies anymore. We didn't care that the kid got rubella. We gave it to his mother. So that was another one that was thrown into the vaccine set schedule for a good reason. It stopped a huge cause of birth defects. And the March of Dimes actually paid the money to develop that vaccine. And then we had... Uh, Many, many more vaccines that came out after that. To me, as a pediatrician, the most significant vaccine minute in my life was the day the Hidden vaccine came out. And that was in 1988. Hid, H influenza B, is actually a bacteria, not a flu virus. It happens to have the word in there, influenza. Hid is just a bug and it does not come in epidemics at all. It's in your throat, and it's in your throat, and it's in my throat. It is very normal to have that germ living in your nose and throat. For some quacky, wacky reason, between the age of about six months and three years, the child can have a weak moment in their natural immunity, and the germ can invade the nervous system. And that invasion caused an infection called bacterial meningitis. In my early days of practice, every time I got a phone call that there was a nine-month-old baby with 105 fever, I would say, you know, it's probably just a viral thing like roseola, but how do we know it's not hidden meningitis? I was doing spinal taps on those kids in the emergency room. We used to have to go to the emergency room and do spinal taps because you had to be sure you weren't missing it Bacterial meningitis could ruin the brain in a matter of 12 hours. A person could put their kid to sleep healthy, and when they try to wake them up in the morning, they're running high fever, and they're deathly, deathly ill. The death rate is very high. Treatable with antibiotics, but the problem was it, it hit so hard so fast that you frequently couldn't get the antibiotics in in time. You didn't realize how sick they were because they went to sleep and they woke up either dead or, or damaged. So, my first 10 years of practice, 1976, 77, and all the way through, we averaged approximately one actual case a month of bacterial meningitis. It was a pediatrician's nightmare because you never knew which one of those fever kids really, got, really had something serious. And they did. They got it. And then they came out with a vaccine in 1986, I believe, with his license. By 1988, no, it was licensed in 88. 
by 1989, the incidence of bacterial meningitis in the United States decreased by 95%. And since that year, I haven't had a single, single one, not one. I was getting 10 cases a year, 12 cases a year. So now that's 30 years later, that's 300 cases of meningitis that were prevented in my little practice alone, never mind what the whole United States experienced. It was the biggest bracha. I was dancing on the ceiling when they licensed that vaccine. But there was still about 5% left of bacterial meningitis, and they were caused by another germ that also lives naturally in the child's throat. I just remember, these are not epidemics. This is something that happens within a child that their own immune system doesn't protect them from their own natural germs. You don't catch it from somebody. It's something they get from themselves. That's why the vaccines are so critical. And they came out with a vaccine that cut, knocked down that 5% that were left. They were caused by a germ that invades either the brain or the lungs, more often the lungs. It's called pneumococcal. The, the pneumococcus or streptomoniae. Uh, that vaccine, again, improved my life because the incidence of children being admitted to the hospital with severe pneumonias in the first year of life decreased by 90% within two years. And the incidence of bacterial meningitis decreased further from 95% improved down to 99%. So we almost never see bacterial meningitis. I'm not talking about the first month of life. The first month of life, the baby's a different animal. I'm talking about a regular, a regular baby. So here we have these wonderful, wonderful, exciting things that we can do for children. And they, everything was going well. I, I never had to speak like this to an audience. And one day, this person named Andrew Wakefield published an article linking measles vaccine to autism. And his article happened to be published in a very prominent journal, which was Lancet. It's like the big journal in England. And all of a sudden, an earthquake <laughs> happened in England. People just stopped immunizing children altogether with measles vaccine. They were afraid it was causing autism. So what happened right after they stopped immunizing, they started having measles epidemics and mumps epidemics. There have been a lot of deaths in England from this soon. And about four years later, an investigative reporter who didn't trust the guy Wakefield. Why? Because 10 years earlier, Wakefield had made a big splash in the news saying that he thought measles vaccine causes Crohn's disease. And he knew that that was false too. So they, they had not being able to, uh, to confirm it, and then he had to back off saying, all right, I was wrong, I thought it was, but it isn't. But he first calls in the newspapers before he really gets his stuff published, so he became very famous. So this newspaper uh, investigative journalism was really nervous that this guy, Wakefield, might be a phony. So he investigated the whole thing. He went to the lab, he interviewed the lab technicians who ran the tests on the kids that he had uh, published, and he found out inch by inch that the entire construct of that paper was false. It was an invention. It was completely done on purpose. And he even found out why Wakefield went so far as to create a false uh, uh, system. It's because the parents of a, a group of autistic children hired a lawyer to help them to sue a vaccine company. And this lawyer offered Wakefield a lot of money, I think it was a half a million dollars, to publish an article in a good journal, if he could get it in, that's implicating MMR vaccine in autism, that he would get more money. 
So they offered him money to publish it, and then they offered him money to, to continue it. And that's what happened. By the year 2004, this started in 98, the country in England was completely, uh, had thrown him out. They had thrown him out of the medical society. They had thrown him out of the entire, he was actually prosecuted for, for false uh, records and everything. He was, he's not allowed to go back to England. But he came here and became a guru on autism. But what did he do? What did he do? He's a rode from the world. He scared everybody. How do I know it's not causing autism? And millions and millions and millions of dollars were spent to prove that it didn't cause autism. And there isn't a, a, a concern about autism, but the m money was spent the wrong way. It was spent to prove what wasn't wrong. And it hasn't really been, there's a lot of genetics that has to be worked on. There's a lot of met metabolism that has to be worked on. There, there has to be an answer for some of this autism. None of it has a cause like a vaccine. It's not that easy. Um, we could another whole talk on why we see more autism than before. But my bottom line is because we're calling a lot of things autism that we used to call mental retardation, we used to call uh, uh, social insufficiencies or whatever. We got a new, the mental retardation basket was full. Autism basket was very low. When we started understanding autism, the basket got fuller and fuller and the mental retardation side went down. So our perceptions definitely have changed. So where does this come to us and why you, and why is this a Jewish problem? I got two minutes left, so I have to explain what happens to the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem is there are people in the granola community, meaning people who are very into organic foods and believing in, in healthy lifestyles and all that, have jumped on the bandwagon that said that the measles immunization is really dangerous and there's all kinds of reasons they give and they, they have very big celebrities, uh, you know, movie stars backing them, everything. So all of that kind of didn't affect me. I was kind of in an isolated situation as a pediatrician in Brooklyn until, until a year and a half ago, two very big names in the Gouda community, two very big Rabbanim, whose wives are very vociferously against vaccines, came out with personal statements of their own one of them, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name, but it's, a, it's, a, it's on Google. It's a really smart man, a really wonderful man, a big guggle. In an interview with the Baltimore Jewish Times said, all vaccines are a hoax. All of them. All vaccines are a hoax. And people who follow their way of thinking see it as doctoral. So he didn't say you're not allowed to immunize your children. He just said, all vaccines are a hoax. They're just money makers for the doctors, money makers for the companies that produce them. All vaccines, and this is Rip Shmuel Kamenetsky, who is one of the smartest, nicest men in the world. He was influenced to say that by his own family, and unfortunately he said it. And not only he said it, but there's another very big family in Lakewood, New Jersey, in the Yeshiva, uh, Lakewood Yeshiva, uh, Reb Mankiel Cutler has put his name on this. And the two of them sponsored, with their wives and with some other people, a magazine called Peach, which was produced, a very slick, glossy magazine, distributed all through the Jewish community, trying to convince people that it's the wrong thing to immunize. And here you've got one little pediatrician here with my knees trembling. What do you mean all vaccines are up? What about them? 
What about the diseases that we used to live with and worried with and, and the kids are walking around right now that are brain dead, brain damaged and deaf? What do you mean it's a hoax? How could you even say it's a hoax? It doesn't matter why they said it or how they said it. The fact that they said it has set off a, an earthquake of resistance in the Aguda community, in the Lakewood community, not so much in the Hasidic community. In Burl Park, I don't have too much problem with it. Wow, I'm really scared. So please, if you know anybody who's doubting vaccine as being valid, if maybe they're nervous, maybe they're feeling that it's a danger to their child to give a vaccine, just tell them Dr. Susan Schulman gave it to her children, gave it to her grandchildren, is insisting everybody take it because it is safe, much safer than not giving it. And there's something called risk-benefit ratio. There is no benefit for not giving. But there is a risk. And the risk of giving vaccines is minuscule, minuscule. It's almost unmeasurable. So this is a hoax that's being perpetrated on the American population, on the European population, and now on us. So if you know anybody who doesn't believe in it, who thinks that there's all these arguments about thimerosal and about, there are arguments that, they, that have been debunked and debunked and debunked. It doesn't matter, they're still in print somewhere. So if you can Google it and find it, then it must be true. So I'm trusting every single one of the 200 people sitting in this room to become schlesen from me to convince their family that this is a big, big issue. And unfortunately, a few months ago, in Lakewood, New Jersey, an 18-month-old baby died of hip meningitis. We haven't seen cases of hip meningitis since 1988. And that child was not immunized. Nobody gave it to him. Nobody gave it to him. It came from within his own normal flora. So I'm hoping, and nobody published it. It isn't in the newspapers. Child dies of hidden meningitis. They covered it up. But I know, I know it's true. I know from real sources that it's true. So don't believe that this is not going to have an effect. It is not theoretical. It's the real thing. So please, God gave us a gift. <laughs> he gave us a gift to help keep our children health, healthy. And prevention is the cure. For many of these diseases, the cure either comes too late or doesn't come at all. There's no treatment for measles. Please, be religious. Think about what the gift that we've been given. And if you hear anybody talking against it, please take my side and say, this isn't a controversy with a balanced argument on this side and a balanced argument on this side. It's a bunch of hooey on one side and a very strong scientific argument on the other side. And please support me and support your children and don't give in to these things. Okay, I'm going to pass on. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. My first comment is if, if I were to say that uh, two Rabbanim were heavily influenced to do something terrible by their wives, I could never speak to you. <laughs> I'm glad it came from you. I, uh, I guess my job is to speak whether we can inoculate people against alcoholism, to bring this uh, topic together. But let me begin by uh, supporting Dr. Shulman's approach of, um, and indicating that halakhically, again, I, I'm not familiar with any 
any halachic writings that would support positions that would argue against vaccination. If anything, all the halachic writings and shuvahs support the vaccinating. First of all, there is a, a shuvah, the Malam Yilohol, who wrote Hoffman, was a um, in Germany, one of the Gdol of Germany in the early, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he had a situation where there were parents who wanted to, who did not want to perform, did not want the doctors to perform an operation on the child. Medical um, knowledge at that point indicated that the operation had to take place, and the parents, for some reason, it's a very brief chuga, opposed it. And Rick Hoffman writes that, again, a very brief chuga, he writes, why should parents have the right to determine the medical care of their own children? That's up to the medical field. Just as we don't have the rights of our own bodies, we, we have to proceed with medical care. We're obligated to seek medical therapy. We're obligated to seek um, intervention and, and protection. Because we believe that our, our, our bodies are gifts and they're we don't, we don't have autonomy over our bodies. All the more so that we don't have a time over our children's bodies. And if Hoffman writes that if medical practice supports a certain operation, the parents don't have the right to intervene and stop doctors from performing that, that procedure. So in this uh, situation where we're vaccinating children, there's no question that it's uh, a communal obligation to follow the medical expertise of any given time. But it, it goes far beyond that and far deeper than that. We have a, a phrase that Gemara says, HaKol Yidei Shemaim Chutz Mitzinim Opach. The two Gemaras. One is HaKol Yidei Shemaim Chutz in the year of Shemaim. That our religious lives, our adherence to Rebona Shalom is our Kajabar who seeks to us. Then there's another Gemara that Sinim Opach are seated to the individual. Kajabar who determines the events of our lives. Kishvarachu wants to see how we react to the events of our lives, but Tzinim Upachim, what are Tzinim Upachim? Colds. So Tosa explains that Chazal understood, and you always have to understand these comments in the light in which Chazal explained them, and in the light in which the Rishonim explained them. So Tosa explains that Chazal saw that a person who caught a cold, that was as a result of their own negligence. They thought that almost all medical issues they came to the Rabbon Shul. But Sidhu Pachim represents a class of events that a person brings upon themselves. That we call Pshia, negligence. So on Kolbi Dei Shemaim, a person can turn to the Jvarchu and say, you've given me a certain deck of cards, you've given me a certain uh, great abilities, and maybe some disabilities, and now you've made it up to me to figure out how to do the best for those. And how will we see all of these as sorts of blessings. But when I do something stupid, when I do something that's negligent, I can't turn to the Jvarcho and say, this, uh, this rebellion victim, this measles victim, this HIM victim is, is a Jvarcho is doing. But we have to take responsibility for that. So we have to always, we also have to evaluate. Whenever we have to discuss any kind of risk, and I'm not indicating that there's a risk in being uh, vaccinated, but in terms of how Allah would evaluate it, Whenever halacha evaluates whether a certain risk is permissible, can a risk be taken? 
But all which I'm asking, is there negligence in taking the risk? Is there negligence in not taking the risk? And the one thing we can't do is be poached be negligent. That's a denial of Israel's great gifts to us. And the ability, the time that he has, has given us. When it comes to the, the, any proactive uh, therapy and, and any reactive therapy, any form of therapy, the question that almost has to be raised when Rabban evaluated is, is this a cogent path to take? Is taking it a, a responsible or is taking it an act of negligence? Is not taking it responsible. And then Chazal goes up further and they explain to us how do you evaluate whether something is responsible or something is negligent. And Chazal explained to us in the context of, of bloodletting, because in the Gemara's time, bloodletting was seen as a, was seen as a ther- therapy. And there were certain times when bloodletting was, was dangerous, and there were certain times when bloodletting was seen as being beneficial. Again, this is based on the science of the times. And Chazal questioned if, if, if there are times when bloodletting is risky, so why are we ever allowing it? And Chazal explained, once the public has accepted a certain approach, we trust the broad community to make this determination. Is something, is there a risk I'm allowed to take? If the community has accepted a certain risk, and we can sometimes clarify, qualify that, that it's not, that the community is not, um, has not, uh, cannot be overridden by experts. But generally speaking, that we are allowed to take a risk if people generally take it. That's, that's the determining factor. There's a, an age-old question. How can a Jew come to shul and tend to, uh, after a trip, after going through, uh, uh, let's say, a safari, or going across the ocean, how can he make a bracha hagomel hachayonim tovim? I was chayot, God should, and he did me a great favor, and he saved me. Well, why did I take a trip to begin with? How could I go on this trip and come back and ask for an ali and say, Chayot told him, a person got sick. I mean, he got sick, a person was thrown into prison because of some, uh, because of some despot of rights. But if a person took the risk on his own, how could we then say, right, come and you finish, make the brach of, I go, Mela Chayot told him, say, one of the, the light shuvas, I would say, it's, a, it's almost a Woody Allen shuva, of, uh, whether a person, a person is uh, unsuccessful in committing suicide, as he benched Gomo, and that, uh, that shows. So the, uh, however, the, the response is, most, is best articulated by the Binyan Sian, Yaakov Edmunger. However, it's uh, well accepted by all, by all, all posts is that there is a risk which we're allowed to take, Doshu Bey Rabbim, we're allowed to travel, we're allowed to go overseas, we're allowed to go on a safari, if it's Doshu Bey Rabbim, it's an acceptable risk. And then you can still come to the Shvarhu and say, we took an acceptable risk, that was more than permissible. We understand that whenever there's any kind of risk, we, uh, we have to come back and, and be grateful that we come back home. So this, principle of Dosho Rabin defines for us what's considered to be a Shia or not, what's negligent. If the broad international community and if the, uh, the entire medical community 
is advocating some kind of therapy or some kind of proactive prescription, then not to adopt that is negligence. And we can't uh, ask in any way for Kishroko's protection in that case. We haven't... Uh, we have abdicated our right to ask the Jeroho's protection. A person can't put themselves in that kind of situation. And uh, doing so certainly is something that um, we cannot do for ourselves and have no right to do for our children. There is a, again, a fascinating, a fascinating story that I'll go on a one moment tangent to, uh, because it, it, it has to be as, as religious Jews, it has to be fully expressed. Uh, Dr. Shulman presented it in part of the, the advance of science um, by Dr. Jenner and, and, and later, later scientists. But there is a, a balance between what Ishbarku provides for us and our responsibility. And it's an ongoing balance. In other words, it's very possible that when the vaccinations were first, were first being promoted, and the idea of injecting oneself with a live virus was scary and frightening, and had not yet been proven, it's very possible that in that period of time, it would not have been negligent not to be vaccinated, and the Kishbrofa would still provide protection for a child that wasn't vaccinated, therefore an adult that didn't take the vaccine. And as science reveals more, and the Kishbrofa cedes more responsibility to us, then he, he, removes some of the protection that he would normally provide for us. As we understand more of God's world, will take care of us if we're responsible. As we understand more of the Rebbonish uh, world, and we understand more of medical science, understand more therapies, then we are, Kishbaruch is giving us greater responsibility. And by doing so, he is removing certain protection from us. He removes from us the ability to turn to him in that for those in those particular venues. And that's a that could explain this goes beyond my, my turf by why we would see certain um, certain maladaptive behaviors creating more disease as time goes on. Because as the Kishbrahu provides us with greater tools, he's then saying to us, I'm giving you these gifts, you have to use them. If we take a moment to, um, to discuss from a, from a Torah perspective, uh, adolescent drinking, again, it's, uh, one could say that for many, many years, I think the research was done in the 80s, and Dr. Mievsky referred to it at the outset, we thought that we were inoculating our children against alcoholism by giving them the kosher broth every kiddush every Friday night and every Shabbos. We thought by providing our children with minimal exposure, it's the vaccine theory, and it probably did work and probably is working. And to this day, it seems that, uh, that there certainly is less of drinking going on amongst uh, Orthodox, uh, observant Orthodox uh, um, young adults than um, amongst the, the general population. Nevertheless, we do have to be concerned about the, the rise in drinking that we see amongst our high school children or adolescents. 
I think there are there are many many um, contributors to this, and we have to address each one in a very broad way. I think that in the general public, uh, drinking has become much more acceptable. It's become something that is part of the business meetings. Um, it's something that. Um, Meetings take place in bars, which I don't think they did uh, 30, 40 years ago. I think that the marketing of uh, certain uh, higher-end uh, whiskey uh, has impacted the front market as well. I, I will sometimes go to a, to a simchat, uh, and, uh, and people take pride in how long this has been aged and where it's been aged and uh, how have I to take that pride and how long I've been aged but the, uh, <laughs> the, and the single malts all these phrases were things I don't know if Jews spoke about this when I was a kid the, uh, the Balabatim would take the I grew up in Canada so in Canada the I think uh, Seagrams was the, was the uh, so they would take the the Crown Royal that was the drink that people and they would pour it they would take much cheaper whiskey and pour it into the Crown Royal and that's the, they all had a Crown Royal bottle but it wasn't Crown Royal whiskey so that's, that's why Jews dealt with uh, they didn't take pride that they got a, a single malt or they got an aged so this this conversation I don't think it ever happened amongst the religious Jews and that is a concern us that it's something which is happening amongst and it has to have an effect on, on children the one, um, the one area that I would take issue with Dr. Mayevsky is also in, in your introductory remarks when you refer to the importance of the joy of Oda Hashem. And therefore, that, that idea of joy can fuel um, drinking and um, and imbibing. So I think that, that these are areas that we have to entirely reorient our thinking. Um, the Rambam writes that the avod of simcha, avod of gedoli, to serve the Baruch with joy requires a tremendous effort. If the Rambam would have imagined that it could be done by taking a, a shot, he would have never said it's an avod of gedoli. And he says, v'kohan uh, Something the joy of serving the Baruch has to be something which is inbred, something which comes naturally to a Jew. It's an avodah gedola to have a Jew feel the sources of joy in the service of Rebbeinu But but it's it's there for the it's a low lying fruits if we're able to accomplish it. It certainly is not something that should in any way be imposed from from the outside. The the idea of um, drinking in Simchas Torah is entirely foreign to the service of, of Simchas Torah. It's something that should not be tolerated in any, in any shul. It's, it's to make Kiddush, making Kiddush is something that uh, often is part of the events of the day in many shuls. But the idea of drinking in Simchas Torah has no place, no source, no place at all. And it's just a confusion of ideas which, it's, which my colleagues and myself have to work much harder at the disseminating. Drinking on Purim is something which is, I would say, the tough nut to crack in the yeshivas. Um, but it's something that we do have to address very frontally. I think it's a great opportunity that we have for discussing the ills of drinking. That um, halacha does not condone getting drunk in any context. Simply because when a person loses discipline, 
We don't know what they're going to say. We don't know if they're going to dab in Mincha Marav. person gets drunk and poor with poor Suda. Will he dab in Marav? If he can't be sure of it, then he simply can't get drunk. This is a, it's, a, it's a non-starter. There are individuals that when they have released their inhibitions, they can still act in very refined ways, as we used to point out. Drinking on Purim is for refined individuals, people of such a high caliber, such sanctity, that they are living in such a high level that even when they lose their inhibitions, they will act with great, great dignity. Unless a person feels they belong to that group, then they take the advice of the Mechaber of Yosef Kara, drink a little bit, go to sleep, and then say, Kiyamti, fulfill this mitzvah, and get on with the, the real and deeper joy of work. I think that from my from the little bit of research I've done in preparation for this presentation, that adolescent drinking should be divided into several groups. There are those who have, from what I understand, have a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. And whenever that's in any, in the cards, if that's in the, in the backdrop, then there has to be an absolute no tolerance, uh, a dry home, a dry existence. But I understand. What we see mostly are adolescents who are experimenting. Um, and how do we address the adolescent who is disturbed? And the lesson two is already, God forbid, um, taken someone on his road to addiction, on the road so that obviously is a diagnostic tool of deeper issues that have to be addressed. There obviously is a great vacuum in this child's life, that there's a great vacuum, great pain, this child wants to escape from something, and that's a that is the, the yellow light, that's the, uh, the cry for help that Dr. Pelkowitz and Dr. Holzer were discussing before, that every parent, every machanich, every rov has to be so alert. How do we deal with experimenting, though? The child thinks, as uh, Dr. Nevsky pointed out, and the adolescent thinks that they're plastic Teflon, they can bounce back, they're invulnerable. We feed into that because we're nervous about raising adolescents with a sense of vulnerability. We're very nervous about children not having the sense of security, of almost being involved. We don't know, we don't have the language. There were four vaccinations, one of the great stories of, of divine intervention when homes, when there was infant death, we, we can't imagine them. I have tell, obviously before my time, but there was a time when a child had the flu when a child had a child with cold, the pacha, the fear in that home of will this child make it? Speak to grandparents, great grandparents, who were born with several siblings. How many siblings made it to our mitzvah husbands? So when, when homes were filled with that kind of trepidation, I don't know if they felt so invulnerable. We bar Hashem. It's a, one of the great stories that we don't live in that kind of pacha. We live in a, in a bubble, so to speak. And when you don't have that kind of pacha, we don't have, and, we're, and we're, we're proud of our children feeling invulnerable and being, feeling so good about themselves and so strong. And we feel we feel they'll thrive. So how do you communicate to a child when you've created that bubble that they can take certain risks, they can behave in certain ways, that they are not nearly as, as invulnerable as they think they are? And that's a language that we have to develop. 
They have to learn how to speak to their children in that balanced way. And this could be a good portal to do that. Children should be exposed to the, the dangers and the risks. We, we wouldn't let a child drive without some kind of scary movie that they see what happens when you drive like an idiot. We wouldn't let a child behind a wheel. And as children become older, we have to explain to them, we have to expose them somehow. That with greater responsibility comes a greater possibility of, of risk and, and a, a much lower sense of, of vulnerability. But I think that overall, the, the way that we have to address the concern of, of experimenting is to, is to bring ourselves back and our children back to the idea of that there are certain behaviors that are just unbecoming of people and certainly unbecoming of religious and Torah Jews. That there are, that what we refer to as Kedoshim Tiyu and Rabban says that that comes to tell us what cannot be a novel Torah and can't be a, an ill-behaved, an undignified person. Torah Jew is an elegant person, an elegant way of life. And certain behaviors are just, they used to be afraid to say, hear so much pasting. They just, we don't do certain things. It used to be that, and, and it's not politically uh, correct to say it now, it used to be that, that Jews associated drunkenness was a, there was a pejorative, a shikr. That one uses these terms nowadays. But that was that distance. If you grew up in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the society, where there was a certain uh, sort of unbecoming behavior, totally distanced from Jewish life, a shikr. So then, that, that teaches, that communicates. But we act with dignity. We are expected to always maintain a certain sense of discipline. That's part of being an Amkadosh. These are very difficult concepts to communicate to a society that is excited about being cool and being with it. And being, and that becomes often the the license to be accepted. But it's very much part of our Masora, and we have to relearn how we communicate these ideas of this, there is such a thing as unbecoming behavior. There is such an undignified behavior, and we expect of ourselves, and we're offering our children a, a life of elegance. Very difficult to teach that. But if Baruch Hu gave us these gifts, he probably gave us the tools to, that we have to learn to teach these values and these ideas. And uh, if again, if we can bring together the two topics, then it's that Baruch Hu does give us great gifts. The gift of vaccinations is a phenomenal gift. And give us the great gift of, uh, of, of having a great sense of security appreciating those gifts. Kishvaruch has given us a great gift of being a Lechus Kohanim. Appreciating those gifts means that we have to learn the tools to teach and to emanate and um, to make sure that these messages become clearer and clearer and give us much greater pride.